I'm going to be reading this morning from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 5 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who reaps up what, he does, what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered the many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor freely merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, you pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its makers has shaped it, a metal image, a, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speeches or speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord it is, in, is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silent before him. Amen. When I was little, my younger brother and I used to go out into the neighborhood and gather a couple kids and when we really got bored one of the games that we would default to was called king of the castle i don't know if it's something that uh, any of you played when you were younger maybe it's just my generation and, and my cultural upbringing but uh, when there's not a lot of kids around and you're bored you would find this little hill or maybe a picnic table and one of you would start on it and uh, you'd get up there and you'd you'd try to uh, to get the others to, to take the hill from you. And you'd call out, I'm the king of the castle, you're the dirty rascal. And, and the idea was that you had to charge up and, and literally, it, it, whatever it took, you tried to take that, that hill, that, that picnic table as your castle. The objective was to become the king. 
Well, we know that this game has been played in, in England, at least by boys from the 1850s. And it goes back even earlier than that to the 17th century, to the Scottish and the British um, Civil War that was going on. You see, there was a, a siege of Hume Castle, and uh, the Colonel, Colonel Fenwick, demanded the surrender of the castle. But Thomas Colburn, from the top of the keep, yelled this, supposedly, I am William of the Wassel, am now in my castle, and all the dogs in the town shan't gar me going down. Now, it's a little hard to understand, but it's basically the same thing. I'm the king of the castle, you're the dirty rascal. As kids, we would play this almost endlessly. It was something easy to do, but it was a ruthless game. You did whatever you could to try to get up there, and it was a free-for-all. It was that time to just get up there and to mock and ridicule those who were trying to take the hill. Well, as we come to our text this morning, we see much of the same thing has been going on in the Middle East during the time of Habakkuk. You see, we, we have these world superpowers of their day, uh, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and, and just rising in the east, we have Persia coming. And, and they all want to be king of the castle. At the time of Habakkuk, the undisputed king of the hill was Babylon. And they had got there because of their ruthlessness, their cruelty, their mercilessness, their, their cold-blooded uh, desire just to overrule everyone. So when the prophet Habakkuk heard that God was going to use this ruthless, evil people to discipline Israel, to be his rod of correction, you can understand how he was just confused and dumbfounded, and even heartbroken, we could say. How could God use such an evil nation to chastise Israel? Now, Israel wasn't perfect. He knew that, and he had been praying earnestly for, for God to change the hearts of injustice that he saw. But how could God use the evil Babylonians? And so from his perspective, he's, he's, he's looking at what's going on in the world around him, and all seems lost. This horrific judgment from God is coming down. The northern kingdom has already been taken away into slavery. And as he's seeing it now, the Babylonians are coming and, and, and ready to take Jerusalem. They're taking people away as slaves. Is this the end of God's promises? What's going to happen to the nation of Israel? Now, as we saw last week, Having expressed all this heartfelt concern, this overwhelming sense of, of doom and dread unto the Lord, Habakkuk waited for God's response. And God revealed that despite the destruction that was coming, despite uh, the overall evil that he would see, those who were righteous would live by faith. And by living by faith, they would then uh, have their reward for their trust and they would be saved. This was, this was a, a super important message for the prophet and for the people to understand. It, it didn't answer all of his questions about what was going on, but it did assure him that God's promises for Israel would not fail. He wasn't done with them yet, and it pointed them towards a future glory that was yet to come. Today, as we're looking at verses 15 through 20, God reveals more of his plans for Babylon, what he's going to do with them. So just despite them feeling like they're the king of the castle at the time, the Babylonians are going to have their day of reckoning. The day of judgment for them is coming, and the Lord's rule would be over them. God's rule would be vindicated. 
Now, as we're looking at these verses, verse 6 tells us very specifically these are taunts. First of all, these are the echoes of the people that, that Babylon has, has dominated and, and taken into captivity, but they also represent God. And very specifically, we're told five times, woe unto them. Now, woe in the Old Testament has a couple of different meanings. As we read it, we need to understand it. And here it means, ha, you think you're the undisputed king of the hill. Well, you just wait. <laughs> ha, you're not the king. So there's a mocking behind it, right? I don't know if you've ever been to a sports game or watch it on TV a lot, but there are certain sports that it's just endemic in. in English soccer is one of them. But hockey, almost anything when it comes to the finals. And there's two of them that, that if I tell you what they were, you would say, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. And the first one is... What's that, right? In 1977, we, are, uh, uh, we will rock you and we are the champions. And, and it just became part of our collective conscious. And you hear this and it just builds to a crescendo and you're intimidating and you're calling out to your enemies. We're going to win this. And the other one that came about about the same time is actually a song from 1967 that, again, as soon as I say it, you'll, you'll hear about it. Imagine a, a game where everything is on the line. And, and you've been fighting so hard, your team is finally winning, and, and the minute's left, and it's going, na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, hey, 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 goodbye. <laughs> oh, this, these things are ingrained in our culture. And if you don't think that it's not other places, I think you just have to go online to the internet and see how much mocking and ridicule actually goes online. Now, we may think that God mocking the Babylonians is strange, but think about it this way. This is simply a right display of God's disdain for the Babylonians. Here they've come to say, we're the king of the castle, and you're, anyone else is the dirty rascal, and so God is demonstrating a righteous contempt for their pride and for their arrogance. He's saying that's not how it's going to be. And he's using words and language and emotions that are going to have meaning to the prophet and to the people of Israel. Because God is holy and righteous in all things, just as Habakkuk had said, God's rulership will be vindicated. And this was a key lesson that Habakkuk needed to grasp. God would triumph victoriously in the end. Now, their arrogance... So it, their, their arrogance of, of, the, uh, of the Babylonians, it, it was really an insatiable greed. And, and we need to remember that, that they were literally taking apart nations and, and taking away all the ex, uh, resources, uh, collecting peoples. They were very much like drunken men in verse 5 when it talks about wine and when it talks about alcohol. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a bar and see a, seen a, a fight break out before I was saved. I had been to quite a few. And, and it's amazing how, you know, everyone could be about their own business, just having a, a drink, and then all of a sudden, something is said and it's taken in the wrong way. But that alcohol has taken away any inhibitions, any thoughts that this 300-pound, 6-foot-2 person in front of you, you know, you're not going to have a chance. 
And so all aspect of prudence, all aspects of, uh, of, of sanity go out the window and, and, and a fight starts. I remember one at a close uh, downtown bar to here um, back in the, in the early 80s, a well-known bar. Um, and I don't know how it started, but all of a sudden it w I was in the middle of a mosh pit. Everyone is kicking and punching and, and trying to hurt each other. And, and that's just how alcohol works. But uh, the Babylonians were drunk on their own greed, on their own arrogance, and they were like drunken men. Now, if, if we take a look at the five woes that we see before, so I want you to take a, a pencil or something, I want you to mark your Bible and just circle them. We see it in verse 6, verse 9, verse 12, verse 15, and verse 20. 6, 9, 12, 15, and 20. These are five things that God is taunting the Babylonians about. Five reasons why he is going to bring judgment upon them. The first one in verses 6 through 8 is greed. The Babylonians had pillaged nation after nation. They had ruthlessly plundered and enslaved countless people, all for personal gain. They were like people who would go to a, a, a payday loan store. You know those places that have absorbent rates. And they would take out anything that they could get. They would take $30,000 and have a 30% return rate on it. But the scripture tells us that they're, they're like people who find themselves on a repayment time. They have, their, their due is coming. The loan is coming due. It's fast approaching. The interest is staggering. And, and they just can't deal with the terms. God says that, that you need to be worried about those who are rising up right now against you. You have taken a loan out. Because they've been so ruthlessly plundering the nations around them, a day is coming when the remnant of the nations will exact a, uh, a ruthless retribution. Blood and violence is coming their way. Now, the second thing we, we see in verses 9 through 10, the second woe is injustice. The greed and evil of the Babylonians came at the expense of other peoples. They had an attitude of arrogance and a discrimination that said, okay, we're the king of the castle and we can do anything we want with impunity. No, no one can touch us. We're really not accountable to anyone. So they set themselves up as leaders over all of the other peoples and they brutally ruled over them cruelly uprooting them. Now, the Assyrians had uprooted and taken people into captivity, but the Babylonians took it to another level. They treated them as slaves, things to be discarded. They, they exploited the slaves to build the Babylonian empire, their houses, their, their temples, the, one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world, the, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon. And, and if it were possible... We're told that every stone and every beam that was ever erected at the cost of their blood would cry out in injustice against them. Now, the closest thing I can think about as an example would be the thousands of Chinese in the first immigration to North America who died building the railroad in the 19th century. Now, it was bad here, but it was even worse in the United States. They would come looking for, for a better life, and they would find some work on the railroad, but they were just, they had no rights. If they died there, there was no help. And so they died in the hundreds or thousands building this railroad. 
And then on top of that, in the United States, in 1882, when the railroad was done, there was what was called the Chinese Exclusion Act that said, thank you very much, everyone back out of the country. We don't want you anymore. And so there was this disregard for life, for culture. And that was at the heart of the Babylonians. Uh, the third woe, verses 12 through 14, is violence. The, the efforts of, of the Babylonians to build this wonderful, uh, powerful empire was at the cost of the blood of countless thousands of people. We know that war brings out the worst in man. We see evil even in the 20th century in Vietnam, in, in Laos, in, in World War II. But the Babylonians were especially noted for their cruelty. It was part of their psychological warfare that they, they waged. They would intentionally dismember, disembowel, decapitate, impale, burn. Did you know that, that they would actually take children and burn them in a fire as sacrifices? One of the tablets that we have, uh, cuneiforms from the, from the time of the Babylonians, actually indicates that any of those who would rebel against them were regularly skinned alive, and then their skins put over top of the, the bodies. Can you imagine the cruelty that must be in the mind and the heart of people who do that? Violent. And God says, I, I'm going to judge you for that. Number four, 15 through 17, there's debauchery. You're known for your, your immorality, Babylon. Now, the language that's used here, I, I want you to think about it in this way. Imagine uh, a man going out to a bar and the despicable act of putting a date rape drug in a, a drink. Well, that's basically what we're having here. God's word indicates that they would make the nations drink, that they would seduce them and trick them, and then they would pillage them and look upon their nakedness. They would mercilessly rape people, and they mercilessly rape the land. So when you see the reference to, to Lebanon there, it's a reference to how they raped and pillaged the land of all its resources, because in the Old Testament, Lebanon is known for its trees, right? And that may sound strange, but think about it this way. Even we think about old-growth forests as important, and, and so we would use and talk about them as an example today. Well, that's what Lebanon was, and they raped and pillaged this area, and they're going to be held accountable. Their actions of violence and destruction were shameless, immoral, in that they, they gained some sort of sick glee looking at the nakedness and destruction of other peoples. Because of their lustful immorality, their actions, their glory, or they saw it as glory, <coughs> they will be shamelessly uh, revealed to the world for all that they are. Their debauchery will be laid bare, their nakedness exposed. In verse, uh, verses 18 through 20, we see the fifth woe. The last woe is idolatry. Babylon, like all the other nations, worshipped false gods made of wood, made of metal. And time and time again, we see in the Old Testament how God abhorred idolatry. These were things that man made by his hands and in trusting in them, he, he thought that they could speak, and, and, but they're really speechless and powerless. As bad as this worship of false gods is, Babylon in the Bible actually takes it to new heights. 
It stands as the epitome of world power against God, in opposition to God. We see it starting in in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel and the necessity out of that then to purge the land with water. We see it in Isaiah 14, which is about the same time as as Habakkuk, but a little bit earlier. And we see this, where the king of Babylon is pictured as someone who wants to ascend the mountain of God and make himself like Yahweh. So this is a rebellion against God. And it comes to full flower in the Bible, where? In the book of Revelation, where Babylon is pictured as the mother of all prostitutes, a harlot who was drunk on the blood of the martyrs. So more than even a single nation, Babylon comes to represent all who stand in opposition to God. And they will be judged one day for that opposition and for that arrogance. For these evils of greed, injustice, violence, debauchery, and idolatry, it's important to see that God's justice is coming, but it's coming in a proportionate manner. This is coming in, in the sense that we have a righteous judge who will judge righteously. It will be an equitable manner. The punishment will fit the crime. In God's pronouncement of judgment, he's showing his disdain for their insolence, their audacity to think that their actions could go unchecked before the the Lord of creation, that they could go unrewarded. Their day of reconciling will come. And that was important for the prophet and the people to know. God would vindicate his rightful rulership, and, and that becomes part of the very definition that we looked at last week in terms of the righteous shall live by faith. Because those who are fully trusting in God, those who are wholly trusting in God and nothing else, will live upright lives even in this evil age and so be saved. Now, as wonderful as that message is, and it is, there's also a warning in these verses for us. Remember how he said that woe has several meanings and primarily it's ha is a kind of a ridicule. It also has the sense of woe to you. It's, it's like going to a funeral and your heart is unburdening. Woe, I can't bear up underneath this. Well, woe can be translated as a cry of distress, a cry of sorrow. Again, something you, you express at a funeral. And here's the importance for us as the people of God this morning, in that not only is God showing his willingness and his determination to rightly judge Babylon, but woe to anyone else who would do likewise. Woe to anyone who showed such insolence and pride and not recognize the lordship of, of, of God. Anyone who practices such injustices and violence. Anyone who would worship idols in whatever form who are greedy, who are wicked, who are immoral. Anyone who would deny God and his rightful rulership and worship in their life, including Israel. And so it's a double-edged sword. Ha! You think you're the king of the castle? Well, this is what's going to happen to Babylon. But woe to Israel should you fall into the same pattern of living. So we're to take comfort in that God will vindicate And so we need to walk uprightly in this day and age, live by faith, because we also have to remember, lest that judgment fall upon us as well. 
for us, there's a great comfort here. First, knowing that God will judge the nations equitably and that Babylon will have its day in court. In fact, we know according to Revelation 18, it's actually going to have a double portion for their evil. We know that there are evil there is evil even now prowling in the nations. There are those countries who would desire to use the world and other countries and peoples as their playground. They're claiming to be king of the castle, trying to become the number one power. They inflict great harm and seem to go unpunished. They're expanding their powers, trying to, to meet what is an insatiable need for more. They're exploiting and subjugating other peoples. They're exporting violence. And they desire to establish themselves, again, as the undisputed king of the hill. They will have their day of reckoning. And here's the thing. Before we start pointing pictures that the two or three that we know are very easy examples to target, we need to think about even ourselves as Canada. Because what are we doing in terms of business, in terms of government, uh, in our influence outside of this country? Uh, is there a possibility that one day we likewise, as a nation, may experience that kind of judgment? But second, these woes are also a warning for us. Those who claim to, uh, to be devout followers of God, those who claim to, to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who attempt to walk by faith, to walk uprightly here and now, sin will be judged. We need to remember, we think that we're saved and everything is safe and okay. You know, it doesn't matter how we live. That's not true. Sin will be judged. Woe to any of us who fall into a pattern of living that's marked by greed or injustice, violence, debauchery, or idolatry. And these are all things that we know can happen to the people of God. Woe is Woe to us if we should follow in the ways of Babylon. In speaking of the coming day of judgment, uh, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3 echoes some of these same themes as, as we're seeing in Habakkuk here. Despite feeling that God is slow in his judgment, remember that a thousand days is like a year to the Lord, but there's a sincere reminder in this that God's day of judgment is coming. It, it, it is an assurity here. Don't think it's not. It'll happen, but it'll happen according to God's timetable. It, remember this. It, it, Peter says it will come. It will come like a thief in the night when we're not expecting it. And when a thief comes in the middle of the night, it will come without warning and it will come with great violence. So be prepared. In the light of this promised coming that we need to be conscious about it, we need to be, what does it mean for us? How should we live? Well, verses 11 through 13 of 2 Peter says this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The day of God's vindication, God's judgment is coming. But while we wait, we need to be men and women who, by faith in Jesus Christ, live by that faith. 
We desire to walk righteously before a world around us. Walk righteously when the world is offering all of these trinkets and beads and things that our heart would desire and say, no, I am, I am rebuking those things. I am, I, those don't belong to me. I belong to Christ. Well, we see these five woes. They're five warnings of God's judgment coming. But baked inside of these, there's also three promises of God. And I don't know if you've seen them before. Now, when I say baked, I use that word intentionally because when you're a kid, what's one of the favorite birthday cakes that you can have when you go to a party? You can have a money cake. You know what those are, right? So before mom ices the cake and she's got all of these layers all stacked up, she takes these coins, whether they're quarters or loonies or whatever, and you put them into the, the, the cake and then you ice it. And then as the cake is partitioned, every kid gets a piece of cake. And inside is this wonderful little treasure. Well, inside of all of these five woes, there are three wonderful promises that God has given us. This coming day of judgment will also usher in a great and wonderful new reality for those who live by faith. The first one, verse 14, the, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Now we see this phrase basically in, in the same exact form in a couple different places in the Old Testament and both before Habakkuk. The first one in Numbers 14, God promises that he will fill the earth with his glory because the generation who had sinned against him in the desert are now not allowed to go into the promised land. But God says, I will fill um, this land with my glory. Again, in Isaiah 11, the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. And it, it refers to the promise of the, the coming of the root of Jesse, the Messiah, Jesus. When he comes, there will be righteousness. There, this glory is what we call the visible manifestation. Now, God is invisible. There are qualities about him we can't understand. We can't see. But there is this, this a weightiness that comes upon us when we're with God. It's, it's this supreme importance. It's a, a who he is and his being. And it, it demands our worship. We understand that this is truly the creator of the world and, and we are simply a creature made by him who has an infinitesimal lifespan. Everything that we are it owes to him. That's the, the weightiness of the glory of God. Because of sin, we're, we're unable to perceive that weightiness of supremacy now. And so we're not even allowed to submit to it in that sense, right? Unless he reveals it to us. And we thankfully, in, in Jesus Christ, have that uh, revealed to us when we come by faith. In the day of judgment, when sin and evil are finally dealt with, this knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth, just like the water fills the earth now. And there will be a universal acknowledgement of God's rulership, a universal submission of all creatures before him. That's a wonderful picture to contemplate in the future, isn't it? We see God's determination above all things that are going on that his glory would finally have supremacy. His glory would win out. It would conquer the evil intentions of man's hearts. He would be glorious. And it, it ensures 
that anything that is to its contrary, whether it's people, whether it's thoughts, whatever nations, anything that stands in contra to God will have its day. Anything that denies the purpose of God will be judged and will be banned from the kingdom forever. Everything that Babylon stood for has seen has been for the glory of themselves, their own edification, their own building up at the expense of the blood of nations around them. It's a glory that's, ba- that's rooted and defined by the evil of men's hearts. But a day of judgment is coming. And in that day, the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth. And as such, it shows us, again, God's sovereignly disposed or predisposed to his own glory. No matter what we may see, what we may experience, God will be glorified. And that's the ultimate end plan. The second uh, jewel we see here in blessing is in verse 16. And it may not be quite as easy to see, but it talks here of the cup of the Lord's right hand. And that will come upon Babylon. The second great promise is that uh, because of their debauchery, Babylon will be forced to drink of this cup. Now, almost all the time in the, wor- in the Word of God, when we talk about this, uh, this cup of the Lord, it's, it's referred to as a cup of wrath. And we see it in several places in the Bible, but especially in the book of Revelation. It, it symbolizes God's wrath being poured out on a deserving enemy. God's wrath coming upon evil and sin and wickedness. His divine anger being poured out. In the day of judgment coming for Babylon, they will experience the wrath of God. And it vividly portrays for us that determination of God to exhibit his justice. So not only is God predisposed to exhibit his glory, he's pre-exposed, predisposed to exhibit his justice. One day, all of this will pass away, all this evil, and justice shall reign. So despite the the destruction and devastation that Habakkuk must have saw, despite having to wait on the Lord and his timing to bring justice, a day is coming when the right rulership of God will prevail over evil men. The day when the, the knowledge of the glory of God fills the earth will also be the day of justice and just rulership. Verse 20 is the third promise that we have of God. It says, When the Lord is in his holy temple, and all the earth must keep silent before him. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The audacity of Habakkuk to go to God and to to press for an answer and say, No, I'm going to wait here until you do. How dare you? If you're holy, how can you use them? And then we see the arrogance of the Babylonians. Well, Thinking about all of this, it's really a wonderful, perfect ending to it, isn't it? One day, no one shall be able to challenge the Lord. One day, no one will dare defy the Lord. One day, all mouths will be shut before the Lord, as everyone everywhere recognizes the glory of God, recognizes the rightful rulership of God, and all will be dumbfounded before His holiness. In that day, right worship will be restored. In the absence of rebellion, there will one day be silent reverence. But until then, 
There will be nations and there will be people who worship idols, worship gods of their own making. And in their pride and in their arrogance, they're actually worshiping themselves. Here, then, we see God's determination to exert just worship. So he's going to, he's, he's predisposed to his own glory. He's predisposed to his own justice. He's predisposed to his own worship. And God is jealous that he deserved the worship alone. In that day, the knowledge of the glory uh, of, the, of the Lord will fill the earth and his rulership will prevail. Idolatry will come to an end and the worship of Yahweh as the one true God will triumph throughout the earth. Now, the overall lesson that we need to walk away with this morning is this, that God is sovereignly in control of history. He is uniquely disposed and committed to establishing his glory, his rulership, <coughs> his worship throughout all of creation. What that means for us is that despite whatever situation we may find ourselves in, Despite whatever atrocities may be going on in the world, we must take heart in the Lord's promised vindication. One day, all of this will pass away. But until then, we must walk by faith. And in fact, that's exactly what living by faith means here in Habakkuk. It's a deep, abiding trust in the glory of God yet to be revealed that compels us to walk in a, in a godly manner before a fallen world. Does that make sense? An abiding trust in the glory of God yet to be revealed that compels us to live a godly life before a fallen world. The woes for us are a demonstration of God's determination, a promise that evil will one day have its judgment. A warning as well not to find ourselves walking in the ways of greed, of injustice, of violence, debauchery, and idolatry. The promises of God that we find baked in here or embedded in here uh, in these woes are the purposes of God's judgment. They are the sure guarantee of a future glory that is his and for us if we are saved by faith. Um, but it brings up the question this morning. How will I live by faith today? As we go throughout the rest of the week, how will you live by faith throughout the week? Maybe the more basic question, we have to take a step back and ask ourselves, what is motivating me to live by faith? Because here's the reality. If, if our trust in God to vindicate his glory and his rulership falters, if we don't really, really believe that he's going to do that, so too will our ability to live by faith. If we don't think that God will judge evil, we, don't, we won't shy away from it ourselves. If we don't think that his desire is to establish his glory, we're not going to be worried about whether we live for his glory. Now, I, I admit there are times in my life when I need a good stern warning. I need that woe to you if you walk in the way of Babylon because I, I know my heart. I'm prone to stray. I'm prone to sin. I, I also see injustice in the world, in, in nations, in, in peoples that are being subjugated. I see violence and I see wars. And, and knowing that God will vindicate these things is, is a great encouragement. I take great comfort that all of this will one day pass away. But if I'm honest... 
I don't find that necessarily a great comfort to my soul because <laughs> I still have to live here and now and there's still such great pain in the rest of the world. What strengthens my soul is what strengthens my resolve to live for faith is the promise that one day the glory of the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will be upon the whole face of the earth. That the Lord will rule over all creation justly and rightly. And that he will be worshipped by all things. Now, the promise of future glory, it, it, it must motivate us. It must be at the heart of where we are. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we really yearn after it? We understand it's coming, but it's so far in the distance. It doesn't, does it make a difference in our lives today? Because if it doesn't, our, our faith will falter. And we won't be able to live for God. The man or the woman of faith who trusts in this future glory yet to come will prepare themselves for it by training their body and subduing sin. The man or the woman of God whose imagination is captivated by the right worship of God in all of its fullness one day will not deny the growing desire and experience to worship God and to follow him now. The assurance of judgment for evil, it's a wonderful promise. It helps me in those dark days. But do you have your eyes fixed on the glory that is coming afterwards? God means to reveal himself in an astonishing display of mercy and justice, with justice highlighting mercy. The woes of our hope for the downtrodden, a warning for the wicked, but the future glory of God that we await is our ultimate end. And again, we need to ask ourselves, do we yearn for it? Does it play any role in how I live for God today? Well, we've also been talking about this idea of lament, that there are times and seasons in our lives when, when we are overwhelmed with dark clouds and, and, and we cannot see beyond the immediate problem that we find ourselves in. Here we see that the assurance of God's victory, that justice will prevail, His glory will reign, that's the anchor for our soul. It doesn't make it going to be any easier. We're, we're in that storm. But imagine yourself as a little boat uh, on this great sea and you're in the middle of a storm and you've got a little anchor holding you to the bottom. That anchor is trust in God's ultimate glory yet to be revealed. That is living by faith. In this tempest, in this storm, in this fallen reality of world and evil and sin that we live in, we live by faith for the glory of God yet to be revealed because Jesus Christ has saved us. And we can see the gospel in, in, in these verses. I don't know if you've thought about that as you look through. First of all, justice, evil, sorry, evil will have its day. Justice will reign. But there will also be a right recompense. There will be a right judgment against that. What will come will not be ex excessive. The, the judgment will match the evil. And we see that in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, who took upon himself the full weight of our sin and, and took upon himself the full wrath of God that we deserved. 
And that glory has started in that having come to Jesus Christ and and received him as our Lord and Savior, we experience peace with God. That's the start of that future glory. And yet we look forward to the day when we will be one with him and all of this evil will pass away. Evil, injustice will be dealt with. But there will be times in our life when we will be in seasons of lament, when we will be challenged by the realities of the world around us. But that's when we must be anchored. We must be anchored in the reality that justice will prevail and God's glory will reign. Amen. Let us pray.